My name is Paul Waller and I'm a horror movie addict. During 2020, the workload for my music industry job slowed right down. And at the same time, I discovered the movie social networking platform called Letterboxd. So I decided to fill in the gaps of my horror film knowledge. I'm still averaging two films a day. This podcast is a result of my horror compulsion. This is a year in horror. Welcome back, both to you regular listeners out there and those new to the podcast. You're all welcome here, especially you. Yeah, you. Cheers for choosing this show rather than that other one. So, last month we covered 1980, and since that release date until now, the day that I record this, well, several of you have emailed. And I want to mention a couple of them as they were pretty inspiring for me. Firstly, from Vermont in the United States of the Americas, I was sent some correspondence from Eric Ellicock. Now, Eric had completed the regular episodes and then he dived into the Patreon channel. So first off, I just want to say many thanks for that, bud. But then he mentioned that he loved Anna and the Apocalypse, which if you remember, I awarded a very, very high, in my opinion, 2 out of 10 score in the Christmas episode. But I did declare it full of decent Glee-esque songs, but just a shitter of a movie. But Eric's attitude is the sort of attitude that I love. I detest gatekeeping in horror. I love an open attitude. Even if a film rubs me the wrong way, I'm super stoked that it exists. And if I cover it, I'll always let you know what my issues are, if it's appropriate. And if you don't agree with me, well, that's cool. Recommend me something that might. I'm still hungry for all this stuff. Right, okay, the other email that moved me was from Kimberly, also from the States, but I'm not sure where with this one. And I'm going to quote a bit of Kimberly's note here. She says, I love the long, heavy hitter episodes that you create. I can put in earbuds and listen while getting the dog walked, do the laundry, get some lunch while being thoroughly entertained and informed. And what led me to your podcast first was happening upon your episode on The Wicker Man and doing a major deep dive into the music. That was fantastic. And I mean, really fantastic. You've got me hooked. Now, Thanks for that. Appreciate that. But the best bit of this one was that she had an idea for a big bonus, big hitter episode, uh, which I've placed into my pack, ready to pull out. So, yeah, Kimberly and Eric, thank you so much for getting in touch and everyone else. I think I've got back to everyone now. So let's get on, shall we? And I've already mentioned it once, but here comes the hard sell. I'm going to advertise my wares for a moment. So, A Year in Horror, it has a Patreon page. Of course we do. And thank you so much if you've already joined. But if you haven't yet, here is what's happening over there right now. If you join at the £4 tier, then you can support the show whilst listening to stacks of extra content, which includes a ton of deep dives on each movie from the Video Nasty Tier 1 list. And in the past couple of months, we have had on author John Tantillon covering SS Experiment Love Camp from 76, plus two episodes with the award-winning effects artist Dan Martin. And he covers both Nightmares in a Damaged Brain 
That was from 1981, if memory serves, and also Cannibal Man from 72. We've also begun to explore the Amityville horror series over there, and I took on Amityville Theatre with the podcast and regular guest of Ben Bowles. And spoiler, it was not a great time. Plus, I've also covered Amityville Poltergeist with the director of that one, director Calvin McCarthy. And that one wasn't much better. Not only that, though, but Howard, the singer from Acid Rain and myself, we have begun a new Patreon-exclusive series called A Year in Bollocks, where we take turns to pick any movie that's easy to source, and then we go in on it. Uh, January featured the film Bull, and for some reason, unknown to myself, I chose the 10-part TV series from 2017 called The Mist. And that was something... There are at least four new episodes for you to dive in each month. I'm going to make sure that you get all the bang you can for your buck. And most importantly, you are supporting this here show, A Year in Horror. You're keeping me fired up and you're keeping me hungry to deliver some quite interesting side quests to this thing. And this is, of course, the main event. So, patreon.com forward slash A Year in Horror. Thank you in advance. But for right now, you have clicked on this here episode of the podcast and I'm about to deliver to you part one of the 1986 rundown. This was the year in cinema that Tom Cruise, that guy, he reigned supreme at the worldwide box office. All thanks to Top Gun, but only just because hot on his tail was Crocodile Dundee, the Paul Hogan super comedy. It clinched the number two spot. For once, though, horror got a look in at number seven in that top ten, raking in 85 million against the 19 million budget, was the rather fantastic Aliens. Poltergeist 2 also smashed its way to the number 20 position, uh, whilst The Fly, Little Shop of Horrors, Friday the 13th Part 6, and also House made it into the top 50 box office listings of that year. So, you know, horror isn't the top dog here, but it's definitely still healthy and vibrant. And it is a sought-after commodity with cinemas being requested by the kids. Horror is still loved at this point. On a personal note, though, I don't think in this chart there is one movie that made it as a 10 out of 10 for me, which is always a bit sad. But it's got a few nines in there, and nines are strong. It's a strong year still, let me tell you. But there's no 10 out of 10s. It's always upsetting. I knew 86 would be a fun year to delve into, though, and I was right, of course. But before we go further, I'm just going to cover a little bit of what we did last month. So uh, that last big hitter episode I pulled out the bag was 1980. My top three there, I had Motel Hell at number three. I had Cannibal Holocaust at number two. And The Shining was victorious as my number one pick. I managed to annoy zero people with that choice. Although I did have my busiest ever mailbag sort of month, the most emails I've ever had. Not one of you moaned about that choice. And I was relieved at that. So... I would say, right now, officially, you're a bunch of good eggs. That you are. I've once again figured out best to worst. That's exactly what I do here. It's my job. Uh, And I mentioned last month that now I've quit managing bands. This is my main side hustle. Just so I can work on the show for you. And as for me, of course, I still love it. So, to make this assessment this month, I have watched a total of 70 horror, science fiction and fantasy movies. I started to hit some really good ones in this list when we get to around the number 28 mark. Which means that there is going to be 
so much to talk about with you that I literally can't wait to get stuck in. But we've still got about another five minutes of this nonsense. And do you know why? Well, because we all need to know what exactly was going on in 1986. First of all, with me, I was 11. I just figured out that girls were a thing and I was banging to girls being a thing. And then there was my obsession. Far more important than girls, it was music. This had not waned at all. Thing is, I didn't know that thrash metal was a thing yet. That was going to take over my life in about a year's time from now. So I was still into this at this time. A man can tell a thousand lies. I've learned my lesson well. Hope I live to tell the secret I have learned. Always with the madge. And then there was some of this. I still haven't stopped with Prince either, but I picked this one up with my own pocket money. I am the one for Gashmatron, the outstretched grasping hand. So, yeah, massive thanks to Lemmy and Co there. That record that I bought, Orgasmatron, it changed things dramatically for music in my head. For the next four years of my life, I became a true metalhead, a complete obsessive. What a time to be alive that was. But now, enough of music. I do remember being at school and a teacher was wheeling out a VHS player uh, with a TV, of course. We're not just going to watch a VHS player. And they showed the class the footage of the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion. I'm not sure what we were meant to make of it or do with the information, but I, I guess I can just log it up to another horrific day at school. Also in 86, Chernobyl blew up. That was pretty horrific. Uh, did anything nice happen? Let's have a look. Yes, I remember the fuss about Halley's Comet. That was uh, currently being visible from Earth at that point. And I've looked through my diaries from that time and I haven't mentioned it at all. So I presume that I stayed in listening to records rather than actually going out in the backyard with my family and a cheap telescope and trying to see it in the sky. Uh, also, we're getting a little bit of horror fuel now. Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera began its run in October of 1986 as well. So that was the times. They were seriously, culturally and significant times, but not horror movie podcast times, right? And I know what you're saying. You're saying, Paul, shut up about this. Just tell us how do things work on your show? For those new to the show, here is a quick guide to what a year in horror is all about. This is a podcast where I choose a year at random each month and I run down my personal favourite films of that year. It's proper simple stuff. Simply, that's the podcast. And if I'm covering a film that you don't like, that you don't care for, or you just like to skip on, then all the time codes, they're in the notes. But be careful, they also act as spoilers for what is coming up next. Plus, with each episode, I am joined by some wonderful guests. Of course I am. They help me wade through uh, the most interesting films of this bunch. And today is no exception. So we welcome podcast regulars, music venue owner and promoter, Andre Dack, astronomer Mark Canali, musician and booking agent Matthew Davies Cray, musician Nikki Jones, podcaster and critic Amber T, the musician that is known as Paul Chanter, plus critic and author Dr. Miranda Cochran. They are joining me here this month to talk all about 1986. As for special guests, actually, this time, just none. Uh, nobody knew at all. 
Uh, I do like to have a new guest on each episode, at least one. Uh, the musician Tad saved the day last month by coming on to speak about The Shining, but I got carried away. Uh, I completely forgot to ask anyone new. It won't happen again. I'll be more focused. Very sorry. So, my definition of horror. It's often considered wrong by those gatekeepers with a more defined opinion of what makes a horror an actual horror. And sometimes these wrong opinions of mine, well, they make it to the very high reaches of the chart. So, if you're one of those usually white middle-aged men, then uh, prepare to get triggered, probably. Because... Being a white middle-aged man myself, of course I am, I've got a podcast, that's what we do, um, I hope we can meet somewhere in the middle, I hope we can do that. Well, you might well be thinking right now that the 70 films that I watched isn't quite enough to judge a whole year in horror, but I actually had 72 lined up, but I couldn't source two of them, and that was proper annoying. But I mean, how good can I Like Bats be, and how good can Bridge to Nowhere really be? I don't know. I don't know because I didn't get to see him. Uh, anyway, do you want the rules? Of course you do. Uh, I do have some rules with this. Uh, I follow these to create this show. So a movie has to score at least three out of five on Letterboxd for me to watch it. But sometimes there are exceptions to the rule. And 1986 saw the release of You'll Die at Midnight. And that scores a very close but not quite 2.9 currently on Letterboxd. This one is directed by Lamberto Bava. Uh, this is a director that did Demons. He is also the son of Mario Bava. Uh, and I'm not just going to let that slide. I can't ignore it. I can't. Here's the most important thing, though. I'm simply a fan. I'm an enthusiast and I am not a scholar of horror. I'm a dabbler in the darkness and I don't watch these things academically. It's a deep, deep love. I genuinely get excited whenever there is a bunch of movies in front of me to watch. But you know, as well as I do, it is just an opinion. This is just a list show. So if I miss something out and you love that thing, just let me know. I actually do want to discover new films. I am bang into it. It's always cool to hear from you. So uh, if you find the time, say hello. I'll say hello back. Feel free to contact me um, at as an email, let's say that, a year in horror at gmail.com. But you can also follow me at Waller Not Weller on Letterboxd, um, Waller Not Weller on Instagram. You can hit me up at Not Weller Pod on Twitter. And I think that's about it. If you enjoy it, leave a five star review, um, I guess, on Apple Podcast. Uh, that's a review where you can say whatever you like, but click five stars. Are you ready? Let's get our kicks. It's 1986. You, you, you wanted the worst. You've got the worst. This is the worst of the worst. It's the worst. Now, there were definitely worse movies than these that came out in 1986, but these were the worst 10 that I sat through for this whole episode, and that includes two god-awful 4 out of 10 picks, four 3 out of 10 suckers, and four 2 out of 10 catastrophes. But there is good news, and that good news is that I watched nothing at all that was a 1 out of 10 dumpster fire of a film this time around. 
As per usual, though, in all honesty, I cannot in good faith recommend to you to watch any of these, even if you're morbidly curious. Although there are a couple in here, as per, that the general horror enthusiast would consider a D-grade winner. Not me, though. We begin at number 10 with a movie that I caught on YouTube called You'll Die at Midnight. It's a Lombardo Parvagiello. It was made for TV, but somehow, why, I can't tell you, but it ended up on the big screen. It's totally average. It suffers very sadly due to its stack of bloodless on-screen kills. And because also of the sort of by-the-numbers police procedural angle, that's You'll Die at Midnight. At number nine, it is The Deliberate Stranger. Ted Bundy was confident and ambitious, a loving son. Everybody's friend, someone to share a lifetime with, until a shocking discovery. No one could believe. For the authorities, it will become an obsession. Victim by victim, the nightmare continues. For the deliberate stranger. For the first time on television, Wednesday and Thursday nights at 8.30 So the deliberate stranger is a very flat serial killer production, which despite its length, it still manages to have lots of inconsistencies, uh, lots of ropey dialogue. I mean, I do love a made-for-TV movie, but when it's true crime uh, in entertainment, should we say, when it's true crime entertainment, I expect things to be done a lot better than this. I mean, fair enough, this sort of genre was finding its feet at the time in 86, uh, but this one properly suffers from just being one of the first through the gates, I imagine. I will say this, though. I did enjoy one of Bundy's victims who was standing outside of a record shop in the film in 1976, uh, but in the very window of the record shop was a Stevie Nicks 1985 solo album in the window display. Absolute legends. Next in my list for one of the worst films of 1986, it's Combat Shock. And the synopsis reads as thus. A dangerously disturbed Vietnam veteran struggles with life 15 years after his return home and he slowly falls into insanity from his gritty urban lifestyle. So this one is reasonably popular uh, amongst the fans of low-budget, mid-80s urban warfare type movies. But for me... It took three attempts just to finish this thing. It was hard, hard work. So we move on to an even worse film, my number seven pick. Not quite as bearable as Combat Shock. This one was called Nightmare Weekend. And for the first time since I've started a year in horror podcasts, I think I have to admit defeat here. I had absolutely no idea what was going on. What I was sure of is that there was lots of awkward sex in it, some strange phantasm balls. Uh, they were in it. There was also the uncoolest, uh, inverted commas, sort of cool biker to rule them all. But all that, it just didn't help anything. For some reason, though, I had a bit of fun with it. Just. Next up, it's Nomads. And... You may well have heard worse French accents than Pierce Brosnan's in this lightweight supernatural head-scratcher, but I bet you that it hasn't been since the carry-on films in the 60s. This one is total trash, takes you out of the movie every time that he opens his mouth. Uh, also, the front cover is a complete lie. It's one of those that upscales the horror and presents a moment in the film, but it never actually takes place in the film. Very annoying. That's Nomad's. Climbing up to number five, it is Escapes. Good evening. 
The world of fantasy and illusion has been with us since man first walked upon this earth. It is within this world that rhyme, reason, and logic have no substance or weight, where justice and rewards are issued from no courtroom or judge, and the impossible becomes virtually commonplace. Journey with me now for the next hour, and you will be introduced to six stories from the humorous and bizarre to the surrealistic and macabre. Welcome to Escapes. So I saw this one on YouTube. It wasn't the greatest of uploads, but in Escapes, well, what we've got is a rather kid-friendly anthology which has a very meta wraparound. It stars Vincent Price and some quite rubbish shorts are splodged in there. Uh, one of them is called Coffee Break, which was definitely worth half marks, I thought. It's about this young guy who's stuck in a loop and they're unable to leave this oldie-timey town. I didn't get on with the rest of this thing. And only being able to source this one on a janky old VHS upload to YouTube, it didn't really help matters, as I've said. But I had to watch this because I want to watch every single thing that Vincent Price is in, but it was hard work. So... Is it fair that I place it so high in the crapo crapo chart? Certainly is. Escapes do better. Worse still is an American production called Spookies. And whilst this film is totally shit, it does have a fantastic amount of creature effects. Knowing that they added a whole new stack of scenes onto an already crappy movie doesn't really improve anything. It just simply makes it a little bit more incoherent. But having some really decent practical creatures at points can sometimes be enough to give it a pass. But even the muck men who tend to fart their way through the scenes that they're in, they didn't even make me raise a smile. Um, they're called muck men. It was dull. At number three, it's the inconceivably incompetent Dreamaniac. And the key line here is, I don't know much about heavy metal. I'm into Lionel Richie. And that should be the motto of this film. Our lead in this is a metalhead that writes lyrics, according to the dialogue. But there's no evidence of this within the film or any other rock cliches at all in this movie. Except for maybe a couple of risque outfits. This one would usually be in that so bad it's good type scenario, but it rarely hit the mark even for that. Top two now, and straight in with a bullet, it's the frankly awful Haunted Honeymoon. And this one fails as a comedy, it fails as a horror, it fails. So, it's time for a rundown, and of course that means... Bring the music! At number 10, it is You'll Die at Midnight. At number 9, The Deliberate Stranger. At number 8, it is Combat Shock. At number 7, it is Nightmare Weekend. And of course, at number 6, it's Pierce Brosnan in Nomads. At number 5, it's Escapes. And number four, we talking Spookies. And at number three, Dream Maniac. And at number two, it's Haunted Honeymoon. 
which means this month's number one, 1986, the worst horror movie of that year that I actually saw. Little caveat there. Well, it's some Japanese junk. It is called Death Powder. Thankfully, this one is super, super short at 65 minutes, but still, that didn't help. Here's the synopsis. It's autumn, 1982. Mankind has been wiped out, except for 863 persons. Three conspirators steal a secret android, and in their warehouse hideout, the android secretes a reality-altering substance, which casts them into a frightening netherworld of interconnected subjectivity. And we're back to me. Somehow there was just way too much and also not quite enough gross-out madness for me to care about it. I saw this one thanks to a VHS rip and it does feel, for the time it was released, well, I imagine it was considered edgy as fuck. Now that edginess is gone, it just felt confusing. And I can sort of see that if you dug Tetsuo, then this one's going to appeal to you as well. But there is something genuinely scary about Tetsuo. Here, it just felt like 25 early MTV indents, those tiny shorts that were so cool back then. Uh, But here, they're just all splodged together and they've been pieced together to make a movie. It is fart house horror. And I'm not here to accept that sort of bizarre nonsense. It is time, I think, for some also-rans. So let me dig my way out of the little hole that I've dug myself in there, please. Let's return to some normality. Here we go. Bang into the very first part of three also-ran sections. This being the one full of the undercard films. The ones that I don't exactly think are incredible. In fact... Some are proper ropey, but in this little section, especially as we climb higher in the chart, I think some of them are going to be worth your time. So we're going to begin with the 4 out of 10s, even though I do believe there are popular titles amongst this lot, and I have bought a few of them, I can't really say that I enjoyed them. And first up is The Ladies Club, and I found this one on YouTube, and all I can say here is that Rape Revenge is a dessert best served cold. And that is ice cold with vigilante justice until we head into this lifetime made-for-TV melodrama of snooze cream. When it thaws out, it's runny rubbish. Following this is a film called Link. And that's a film that I rented on Prime. And Jesus, tonally, this thing's a complete mess. This little dude is a devil monkey with evil on his mind. Link veers between comedy and menace with little desire to PCM results into a watchable format. I genuinely felt concerned for Elizabeth Shue in a couple of places and the chimps also I felt concerned for throughout the movie's whole running time. It is a proper oddity, this one. Better than Link, though, is Slaughter High. I probably think that because the opening bully scenes are sort of Stephen King harsh, but when the film settles into a pretty standard slasher deal, it just has a a few odd accents and some 30-year-olds playing teenagers. There's a few decent kills. They're inserted in this, sure, but I wish I hadn't already seen this one sort of spread out throughout 30 other films that came out before it. This is okay. I much preferred, though, Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness. 
That's next in my list. Uh, this one had loads of potential, but it just misfired every now and again because it never went for the gore. It would always cut away at the key moments. And I wonder if it was just cut in the version that I saw, as everything else was just so well cobbled together for a, a clear, low-budget movie. It was obvious that's what it was. Was it just the copy that I saw? Uh, as for the plot, well, a man loses his plot after his wife leaves him for another fella. So then he goes around killing everyone that he can. And that's your lot. That is true for dare, a critical madness. Next up was Shadow Play. Another one which I found on YouTube. And of course, with this one, we've got Dee Wallace. And she is the standout as ever. But... This movie is hampered by chaotic editing during this opening 30 minutes and really ropey dialogue for the remainder of the film. It is a, a sort of lovelorn ghost story. Uh, also, the fact that the whole plot is so obvious from the first moment that you see the brothers when they're introduced, it means that you just go through the motions during the whole film until you get to the very end. Sad, sad time, Shadow Play. So let's get over Shadow Play. And we're in. Better than that. Was it ever popular B-movie? Rawhead Rex. But those tongue kisses at a 22-minute mark, they were the gross-out true horror in this one. It was absolute yuck. It had a similar look to it as Extro, but the tone is clearly different. Rawhead Rex is a little more irreverent in its approach. I reckon, though, without that silly rubber mask for Rex, this one might have had some legs. It might have been worth it. But look... Let me, let me tell you a little secret. Better than Rawhead Rex. It's Annihilator. That's right. We are into the 5 out of 10 half-mark heroes now, and we've got Annihilator. In Annihilator, Richard's girlfriend comes back from vacation a little different. When she said she was taking the red eye, she wasn't kidding. You're not Angela. Swift, isn't he? Everybody on her flight was replaced by evil alien robots. That's what happens when you fly coach. Now he has to stop the aliens from taking over the world, hunting the robots down one by one. Where did you come from? What happened to the people you replaced? You have to hand it to them. They are well armed. Also, again, many thanks to whoever propped this one up into YouTube. Thank you for that. Mark Lindsay Chapman doesn't have much luck with aeroplanes. First, he had to deal with the Langoliers in uh, the Langoliers. And now he's got to deal with an android army in Annihilator. Still, I preferred his British accent in the Stephen King adaptation. This one, though, does have a few pluses. It's got a commissioned Bowie track for a start, which is Ashes to Ashes. And it has the fantastic Catherine Mary Stewart, fresh from Night of the Comet, chewing up the scenery in the first act. I mean, this thing is okay. It's just too flat and obviously made for TV to be just a real quality Terminator clone. Not quite a contender. Following this is In a Glass Cage. Now, I can see that this film carries a lot of weight and it is really popular amongst those that have seen it. But it felt a little too slow moving and self-important in its tone for my taste. And traipsing over like Nazi war crimes and paedophilia. It's not small subjects. But this one it felt to me that it was made to leave an impact. And not just be a film that you would be entertained by. And sometimes that can be absorbing and it can be powerful. But here it just felt meandering and over the top at the same time. I get it, 
but it's just not for me. That's in a glass cage. Better still, and far more my bag, it was class of Newcomb High. And I like this enough to buy it. But again, I wouldn't have given it more than 5 out of 10. And if I told you this was a trauma film, well, that might be all you need to sort of help you know if you're going to like it, if you're uninitiated to Class of Newcomb High. If I read out the letterbox synopsis, maybe that'll help. The pupils at a high school next to a nuclear power plant start acting and looking strange after buying contaminated drugs from a plant worker. Now, now, that sounds like a bit of you, right? Does it? So, we're at the final pick, and on this very first section of the also-rans, we've hit gothic. And would you believe, the wonderful human being that is Dr. Miranda Cochran, she's come back onto the show to chat about me with it. Now, Miranda is an author who also writes for Diabolique magazine. She is fascinating to chat with, and in fact, she was last on this very program one month ago when we delved into my second favourite film of 1980, Cannibal Holocaust. This time around though, Miranda has gone for an outsider's choice, but it is definitely a choice worthy of conversation. It's what I love doing about this show. I get to discover absolutely new movies, to me at least, that I may never have bothered watching otherwise. Plus, I get to speak to the coolest people in the game at the same time. So here we go, getting all up into Ken Russell's take on one of the maddest parties of all time. It's gothic. Before Mary Shelley could write her masterwork of terror, Frankenstein, she had to experience it. It's alive! You can't run away from your own fears! In one night, two legends were born. Miranda, welcome back. We're now talking about Gothic. Yes, uh, yeah. So just a little bit behind the scenes. So we've just um, spoken about last month's film, Cannibal Holocaust, and now we're going straight into something that's a little bit lighter. I, th- I think yes. it's a bit lighter. It's lighter. It's bonkers. But like, you know, <laughs> probably no one chopped up a tarantula or killed a turtle or anything while making this film, as far as I'm aware. So, you Thank know, goodness. slightly better, slightly better for that reason, I think. But it is like it is a delightfully insane movie. So it's it's more fun to talk about, I think, or more maybe not more fun to talk about because I love talking about like controversial things, but um and you know, disturbing films, but it's a little, yeah, a little bit lighter. Well, my history with this one is really quick to go through. My first watch was this week, and I'd seen it growing up. There was a poster of it or one of them cutouts. Uh, in my VHS shop when I was really young and Mm. it was always on the shelf so I just always remember that image of the sort of little golem creature yeah yeah Um, but I'd only seen it for the first time this week what's your history with it I think I honestly like I don't have an extensive history with this film it's not something I saw when I was young I think I saw it a couple of years ago um just because I was interested to see what Ken Russell would do with a film about you know the romantics and the writing of Frankenstein and you know I I think that's why I checked it out um so I don't particularly have a, a very interesting film about or a very interesting history of this film um as far as I'm aware by the way the whole film is streaming on YouTube for free if you're interested so 
you can oh no way I, I spent yeah, a yeah. fair bit on it and a dvd no 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 it's it's on youtube um for for nothing um i guess no one <laughs> bothered to check out like follow up in the copyright like it, it's not a it, like it wasn't as far as i'm aware a particularly successful film or a particularly huge film so i don't think anyone is too bothered about any copyright infringement there so that's how i rewatched it recently streaming on youtube so um, I am interested in anything Ken Russell does because one of my favourite films ever is The Devils. I just Me too. I love Ken Russell. Love um, Crimes of Passion is another one that I really like. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, and I, I like Tommy as well. Um, it's Not it's fun. That. A great, it's great musical um, or actually a rock opera. Um, and I really like his version of The Lair of the White Worm, which is a completely insane film as well. And that's kind of what I admire about Ken Russell. He just is not afraid to be completely insane and just do completely bonkers things. And I really, really admire that. Like he was, you know, he was quite an original in many ways. So even if, you know, even if a film he's, he makes isn't particularly successful, it's always enjoyable. Well, I'm so glad you're mentioning these words bonkers um, it's because I thought is this what you would deem as normal here this this film was mad like my very yeah. final comments in my notes were what the f have i yeah. just watched yeah like, i i need to watch it twice i don't think you can watch it once and just like know mm. everything that's gone on yeah. there you know uh, the basis yeah a lot of it is quite surreal a lot of it is kind of based in fantasies and hallucinations and dream imagery so it does a lot of kind of like blurring between uh, blurring up the lines between reality and fantasy and what people are, you know, imagining and what is real. So like, I think that's quite interesting. Um, I was kind of thinking about it the other day and I was like, you know, it kind of feels a bit like, like an anti-merchant ivory film. I, I was reading this, um, this uh, article about it that was talking about um, Gothic in relation to like the heritage film and kind of like the growth of like, prestige heritage films in like the 1980s and 1990s, you know, like the Merchant Ivory films, for example. And I, I was kind of thinking this film is actually kind of like an anti-Merchant Ivory film. You know, it has the historical setting. It's based on a, liter a literary pretext, but it rather than being kind of refined um, and restrained, it just goes like all out insane, which I really enjoy. It's, I mean, the, the thing that you're confronted with straight away is the opulence and the wealth uh, yeah. that, that's on display on the screen. Like, it feels like, and I, I saw the budget wasn't massive, it wasn't ridiculous, but they rinsed every penny that they could to make this yeah. thing so believable. Uh, it yeah. just looks so right. And the guests as well, as they arrive, they're, they're so carefree with their attitudes. Yes, and it's, yeah, yeah. This whole setup is quite exciting. Yeah. It's like, oh, what can happen here? Because I knew nothing even about yeah. this in history so when I was reading mm -hmm. up about what actually happened and and it sort of did take place well I, yeah. I was shocked yeah so it is based on the events surrounding the composition of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein actually a number of of horror stories came out of these events one was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein one was, I think, a fragment of a vampire novel by Lord Byron. I'm not 100% sure on that. And then the other one was John Polidori's book, The Vampire, which is like one of the, the first texts to make the vampire a sexy, seductive yes. aristocrat, because in that story, the vampire is very clearly based on Lord Byron, who 
Polidori clearly had a thing for. Um, but yeah, it's based on the events that took place at the Villa Deodati in 1816, when you got all of these kind of luminaries of the of the romantic movement, I guess, I'm not really quite movement, but um, all of these uh, literary luminaries together, Percy Shelley, his wife, Mary Shelley, who actually wasn't his wife at the time, they'd sort of run off together and she was calling herself Mrs. Shelley, but they weren't married because he was still married to another woman, but they were big believers in free love. Uh, there was Mary Shelley's stepsister, Claire Claremont, who had previously had a romantic encounter with Lord Byron and she was still kind of after him. There was Byron, Lord Byron himself, of course, and then his physician slash hanger on, um, John William Polidori. So all of these guys were hanging out at this, um, at this, you know, in this lovely villa uh, in 1816, which is a year that was known as the year without summer. And the reason for that was because of a volcanic winter that was brought on by the eruption of a volcano in the Dutch East Indies or what was at the time the Dutch East Indies so it was a period of like really sustained bad weather uh, like it was a a climate anomaly so they were you know hanging out at their their lovely villa and decided one evening that they would tell ghost stories and apparently it is from this telling of ghost stories that we get Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as well as Polidori's The Vampire so you know this one period of time with all these people hanging out together was incredibly generative in terms of the development of history of literary history but also like gothic fiction I guess hence the title of the film that it's it's very much you know self-aware allusion to the importance of this event in the development of of gothic literature so yeah that's amazing so that part is based on on real events apparently some of the other stuff in the film is based on real events as well so the fact that there is a hotel across the the lake from the villa deodati is real also um there apparently was a hotel across the lake from them and apparently the guests would spy on them there's like a letter from lord (laughs) byron where he talks about the guests in these hotel uh, in this hotel with their telescopes and their their glasses, like watching watching Byron and what he's up to. But Byron seemed like someone who like really took pleasure in his um, his identity as England's greatest sinner. He loved the scandal. He loved the attention. He loved the celebrity. So he very much kind of cultivated an appearance, a public persona as this kind of rakish figure anyway. So I think he was kind of enjoying the fact that, you know, all these proper British people doing their grand European tour were scandalized by what he was up to. So I'd say he 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 seemed to enjoy it a fair bit anyway. So like the bones of the film are kind of based in reality. Some of the background stuff as well, like Mary Shelley talks about the fact that her mother died shortly after she was born. Her mother was the the feminist philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote the the book of Indication on the Rights of Women. So she was a, a very important figure in her own right. She died shortly after Mary was born. Um, so that's that part also has a basis in reality. The fact that Mary Shelley herself had lost a baby in infancy also has a basis yeah. in reality. And people who know Frankenstein will know that, you know, she referred to the book as her hideous progeny and this idea of like monstrous birth is very crucial to Frankenstein, but also links back to Mary's own experience of like pregnancy loss and child loss as well. So a lot of the things they allude to did happen. The the bare bones of the film is is quite accurate, but well, obviously you, you say bare bones. That is a lot. 
that is a lot that, that, is, that you could get a whole lot. film out of. Oh yeah, I mean all the other stuff as well. Like you know the the scenes where Byron is putting on a mask and the mask says Augusta. That's a reference to uh, his half sister Augusta, with whom he had an affair. Um, so that happened. Like a, a lot of the stuff that is going on in this film, you know, it 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 did happen. There's a lot of interesting background stuff that is kind of alluded to briefly, but the film doesn't really get to tease out. Like there's um there's a scene where Byron says that like he doesn't need food to sustain him, and I think Polidori mentions his drinking vinegar. And apparently Byron did, in fact, drink vinegar, vinegar as like kind of an, an, I guess, kind of an appetite suppressant. When he would eat, he would like drown his food in vinegar. And he was really like preoccupied with his appearance and keeping his weight down. And he would he would exercise compulsively and wear like heavy clothes so that he would sweat and lose more weight. I wondered and what he, that was about. Yeah. So he did actually. I mean, Lord Byron had what we would now probably call an eating disorder. He was really... Sure like preoccupied with the sort of cultivating the sort of romantic appearance of kind of like slender pale like that was the the ideal at the time the kind of consumptive look and he was sort of preoccupied with keeping that appearance and he did apparently consume vinegar um towards that end to like suppress his to suppress his appetite and he would apparently like starve himself for days and then when he would eat he would binge like loads of meat and cold potatoes and various other vegetables, but he would also drown them in vinegar. So he was like, he was fascinating, but like a lot. So a lot of the stuff, the film references it, like it does have, have a grounding in reality, but you know, it then kind of takes a, it also kind of takes a, a sharp turn into kind of like fantasy and hallucination and kind of playing with these sort of like nightmare images and what's real versus is what imaginary well that's what pops it into the the horror landscape so mm. i mean everything that you've just said is more than enough i think to sustain a drama like and a really yeah. good drama at that yeah. i tried to find something that sort of refutes this that says well actually that this isn't an actual meeting that took place but i could no, not no, find anything also, if you've ever seen James Wells, Bride of Frankenstein, you know, the little prologue at the start of the film where you have yes. Byron yeah. and Shelley and Mary and Byron is like, oh, it's, uh, you know, look at this night. It's, you know, a terrible night. And Mary's like, guess what? I have more in my Frankenstein story. So let me tell you about the time Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein tried to make a wife for his monster. That is meant to be the Villa Deodati meeting. That's That's what that is. Except that in Bride of Frankenstein, it's just, you know, Mary Percy and Lord Byron, whereas in reality, there was also Claire Claremont and um, Polidori as well. I don't know about you, but with that film, I always wanted that scene to be elongated. I wanted much more of that stuff Yeah, going honestly, on. I just want more Elsa Lanchester because I love her. <laughs> I think she's amazing. Um, so, like, she was fantastic. But also the guys playing Percy and, and Byron in that scene are just, like, camping it up a ridiculous amount, uh, which I love. But, I mean, you kind of get that as well in, in Gothic. Like, Gabriel Byrne and Julian Sands are, like, everyone in that film is just, like, over-the-top, spectacular, camping it up. Yes. Though, like, I, I mentioned that I was I was uh, reading something about, or re-watching the film recently, and someone on Twitter was like, the best part of the film is that Gabriel Byrne seems to keep forgetting which leg he's supposed to be limping on. 
which I, oh, I, had, no, I, I had a reason. That. And that's actually another thing that has a basis in reality. They never mentioned it, but Lord Byron was born with like a deformity in his, I think it was his right foot. Um, so that that is why Gabriel Byrne is limping throughout the film. But I think sometimes he forgets to limp as well. So, <laughs> But everyone is just so delightfully like over the top and ridiculous and manic in their performances. And that's one of the things I love about it. I have to mention my favorite performance. Um, it's Timothy Spall. I oh just my God, he's incredible. amazing. I know, I know. It's really funny because he actually, like, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but like John William Polidori, if you've seen a portrait of him, was like really good looking, like absolute, like romantic. Wow. No, I haven't. Like, you know, uh, and, and like Spall definitely doesn't really embody that aspect of Polidori, but he is just so over the top and like, just absurd like and they they really make like a meal out of the fact that he's catholic and they keep kind of referring back to all of these like catholic anxieties and kind of inhibitions that he has that the other characters don't have and you know he he knocks the crucifix off the wall at one point it's like banging his hand into it and he ends up with a wound that is like you know stigmata like it really just like goes to town with some of that stuff but i think he's amazing i love him in this and i love um the other person I absolutely adore in this is Miriam Sear. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The actress who played Claire Claremont. So. She's amazing. She's just like wild hair, wild yes. eyes. Just she is absolutely amazing. I love her. She's incredible. Um, so I think, yeah, those two are just the best perform- are, are my favorite performances. But I think everyone is just hamming it up in this really delightful manner. And I really enjoy that. I, I know a lot of people, especially I know some Byron um, scholars or scholars of the rom- of romanticism who, who don't like the film, but like, I just really love how over the top and ridiculous it is. Well, this is the thing. I am um, over the years, the, like my, the lower rungs that don't get talked about so much. So I put all my films into a, a sort of chart top 10, and then we've got the also mm-hmm. rounds and I would still put this in the also rounds, but I do yeah. think that, that also rounds are really important touchstones and this yeah. film gets overlooked do, do you know why the reason is or can you fathom the reason why people tend to put this one to one side these days and go for something else yeah it's it's kind of an interesting one because I, I think it does some really fascinating stuff it do, like I one of my favorite things this film does is the way it it references pain. It references all kinds of art, obviously, because its its main protagonists are are writers and poets. Right. But it references visual art as well in some really interesting ways, like the, you know, the poster image, and then we have that scene in the, you know, that's based on the scene in the yeah. film where Mary imagines the the goblin sitting on top of her. Like that's based on uh, a very famous painting, the the Fuseli painting of the nightmare. Uh, it's like a late 18th century painting like and it, it the film replicates it in a really interesting way and I, I love that it does that so it's constantly referencing like art and film and it references a lot of kind of early 19th century popular culture um and also kind of scientific developments with the automatons and stuff like that like it does some really fascinating stuff but I kind of wonder if maybe it's just the messiness of the film um that perhaps has made it a little bit more overlooked. Like a lot of, I mean, a lot of Ken Russell's stuff is is messy. Like I love the layer of the white worm, but that is just like a whole bunch of craziness, just kind of like 
some of it is is you know coherent but there's a lot of kind of messy stuff a lot of strange imagery like I think Ken Russell is one of those people who wasn't afraid to experiment and kind of push the limits obviously with things like the devils he really pushed the limits but you know he wasn't afraid to do kind of strange things to offer up unusual imagery um I kind of wonder if this with this one maybe it's the fact that it's it's a little bit it's a little bit messy it's not necessarily a coherent narrative a lot of it is kind of grounded in fantasy images I mean like the court story in and of itself is fascinating you know you get these huge literary figures all hanging out together and obviously they all did hang out together in real life and you know had complicated relationships and slept together and did all sorts of things but and like that's interesting in and of itself but I think the film kind of departs from reality kind of midway through and starts to bring in all of these kind of bizarre fantasy images and all of these bizarre kind of like dream and nightmare scenarios and particularly towards the end where you get that scene where Mary is kind of like trapped in this kind of mental space with like this you know a couple of doors and you know she when she goes through each one she sees something different she sees you know the the you know the death of her child and then she looks forward and sees the the death of her husband Percy and that's another real thing he his body was burned on a beach like that that is that is what happened he drowned his body his body was burned on a pyre and like there's this whole story about how apparently Mary you know saved his heart and then kept it with her um so like that that actually was grounded in reality as well and I think the fact that the film sort of blurs fantasy and reality in that way um, that you're never entirely sure which is which. I think it kind of makes it a little bit messy in terms of its narrative. And then you have that sort of leap forward at the end where you you go from, you know, 1816 yeah. to the, pre- the, the present day, 1986 or whatever. Um, and you have all these tourists walking around the place and it's kind of a very sort of sudden jump. So there are kind of a lot of strange creative decisions that I think maybe, you know, I'm not sure all of them work. Like I found the the jump to the present day, not necessarily jarring, but like overly explanatory in a way. Like he was trying to sort of hammer this point home about like, and this is what happened to all these people. And obviously there is a connection thematically between the cult of celebrity in the 19th century when you have all those people spying on, um, on Byron and you have those two women who like chase Percy off the off the lawn or whatever and like try to grab his yes. coat and like like they're like he's I think he's obviously trying to establish kind of maybe a cult of celebrity and kind of ideas about like tourism and and like literary superstars in the 19th century and now but I feel like I don't think he needed that like I think you know having all the these people across the lake spying on the villa and having these crazy women running off, running after uh, Percy as if he's one of the Beatles or something. Like, I think that was obvious enough in and of itself. I don't think he needed the jump to 1986 at the end. So like, there are some like messy creative decisions uh, that perhaps don't work, but I kind of enjoy the messiness of the film. So I I kind of, I I, I like how kind of unhinged it is and how, you know, it's creative. I like that. I don't think Ken Russell is the sort of person that would bow to studio pressure. So I think it it was meant to finish in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is unusual that he would like have to explain something to us. It does feel like 
they've the studio has seen this bonkers movie and then gone can you just like tidy it up a bit at the end yeah like yeah, tack something on that. at the end and just like explain the moral <laughs> of the story to us please you know, my issue um, so, at the beginning was just I thought it might be a bit stuffy, and that's why oh, yeah. I never approached it. But then, as soon yeah. as you you start, it's so sexually fluid, and yes, it like yeah. there's going to be so much fun. You never get to that. Uh, I'm watching a costume drama sort of thing, and you know, you start to yawn, look at your phone. No, it's never yeah. like that. It's yeah, exactly, like, oh, exactly. And like that's why I'm thinking of it as like an anti-merchant ivory film because I'm like, I'm not a huge fan of those kinds of films, but. I kind of like that Gothic has, you know, some of the trappings of the kind of prestige costume drama. And then it's sort of like, and by the way, all of these people were sleeping together and like taking opium and like, it it just, it kind of just goes for all of that stuff. And I, I kind of like it. It's almost like it's luring you in, in a way with this sort of like, well, you know, it's a literary film. It's about Mary Shelley and Percy and Lord Byron and their relationships. And then it's like, orgies and like drugs and craziness and I I really like that I feel like there's got to be some weird scenarios where like a couple of secondary school English teachers were like I'm going to show this film to my (laughs) class and then we're like oh no Um, yeah and like again all of that has its grounding in reality like Mary Shelley and Percy and Claire Claremont were what the the kids today would call something of a throuple like there was a kind of three-way sure. thing going on there you know he was sleeping with Mary and he was uh, sleeping with Claire apparently I, I don't know if it's like necessarily been verified but that seems to be the consensus like these people did have like these crazy explosive dynamic lives and I kind of like that the film goes for that and it just it doesn't try to be restrained it just it embraces sort of the madness and the you know I mean like Lord Byron, you know, famously was called by one of his lovers, Lady Caroline Lamb, mad, bad and dangerous to know. And like the film just goes for that. Like it goes for the insanity. It goes for the sex. It goes for the craziness. And, you know, it might not always work in terms of being the most coherent of films. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure maybe Russell conveys all the ideas that he wants to convey as clearly as he might, but I think it, it's an enjoyable film. Like, you know, that, that first scene where like Mary and Claire and Percy come into the house and, you know, there's like a goat just wandering around the place. Like, it's just, it's delightful. I love it. <laughs> I loved also when, when they run past, I think they're playing hide and seek and they just run past the staff. And the staff are like not batting an eyelid. Yeah, they're just smile. yeah. They're like, oh well, <laughs> you know, another <laughs> another evening, another evening at Lord Byron's place. Yeah, it's great. Which, um, my God, can, can you imagine working for it being like Lord Byron's cleaner or something? Like the stuff you would have found, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. I think that this one is quite the watch. I think that well, I mean, as soon as it finished. I was looking at other works and like I did then mark, right, I've got to see this Lair of the White Worm. I've got to see that one now. I do. It, it is insane, yes. Um, again, same question as with Cannibal Holocaust. Um, in today's climate, can you uh, recommend this for, for our listeners? I would totally recommend Gothic and without the kind of reservations that I, I have about Cannibal Holocaust. I, do, I don't know as much about its production, but like, I'm pretty sure no one killed an eater turtle on set, as I was saying. So yeah. um, like I would, I think it's an interesting film. I think it, I think it kind of like it's called Gothic. And obviously it's because it's 
based on the the events that basically created both Frankenstein's monster and modern vampire as we know it. Uh, but I think it actually kind of captures the essence of the Gothic as in like Gothic literature, which is all about sort of ambiguity and uncertainty and transgression and sort of the interplay of reality and fantasy and dreams in the real world. I think it does that really well. And I think some of the imagery is just, like I said, the, the reproduction of the Fusilli painting, the nightmare um, on screen. I think that's fantastic. I think some of the imagery is really, really interesting. And I think the performances are great. Like they're really, really enjoyable performances. Like sometimes like in places over the top, but like considering some of the figures that they're they're portraying these like, like I, I don't know if you could do like a subtle restrained version of Lord Byron, you know, because he's just such a, like a legend as a person. He's such a larger than life figure. And I think, the film isn't the most subtle film, but I kind of enjoy the different ways in which it's just over the top and sensational because it fits with the subject matter. I mean, there's a scene where Percy is like climbing around on the roof naked. It's, you know, it's insane. <laughs> I think it's ripe for rediscovery. As I say, I have always had it on the back burner. I mm-hmm. know that it, it cost a fair bit for me to get a, an old DVD of it. So yeah, fingers crossed someone releases it and like sort of spreads it to a to a whole yeah. new generation of horror. I, I'd like to see it like I, I would like to see a new release with like maybe some commentaries and things. I think there's you know, there's a lot to be said about it's you know what it's doing. There like there, there's a there are so many references in that film to like the it doesn't explain or go into to you know references to like the biographies of these people to various literary works they've produced to you know various weird aspects of early 19th century culture like there's so much going on that I think it would be it would be ripe for a commentary so I'd, I'd love to see someone do a do a nice release of it with you know commentaries and special features and things because it's a really interesting film and like Ken Russell is one of those directors he's never boring like even if he makes things that aren't necessarily successful I've never been bored by a Ken Russell film. No, fair. I mean, maybe one of them commentaries might be uh, from an academic like yourself, Miranda. Yes, exactly, exactly. I actually know a bunch of people who are like specialists in Byron and Shelley and people like that who are probably who would probably be cringing if they listen to this because I'm like I'm not a specialist. I'm I just like I, I work on Gothic fiction, um, and I'm you know I'm interested in 19th century gothic fiction uh but like i'm not i'm not a specialist in poetry or byron or shelley or anything like that so you know i i I definitely know some people who would who would maybe make good uh commentators as well or you know we could you know do it together and they could talk about byron and i could talk about like horror and the gothic and stuff it would be great love that i mean i've learned so much about this film just from chatting with you for half an hour oh yeah basically like one thing I would say with this film is that when you're watching it and you're like, that's absolutely crazy. Did that happen? It probably did. <laughs> the only thing I can't find any any evidence for are the the automatons, you know, the, the sexy stripping automaton. Uh, oh, how have while, we not mentioned them? Yeah. So like while automatons were like really popular at the end of the 18th and into the 19th century, like it was a it was, it was like a cultural sensation. Um, there were lots of kind of popular automatons that different people had made some of them actually worked some of them were were fake there's like the famous one is the the mechanical turk the one that played chess 
they were big sensations and people would go to see them being exhibited in different places. I don't think there's any evidence that Lord Byron had any, but I do like to think that he had like a sexy automaton in his house just randomly. It's a great scene. It's just so funny. <laughs> it is. Let, let's not spoil it anymore. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's worth seeing though. It's so good to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was really, really nice to chat. And there we have it. Many thanks once again to Miranda for joining me here in the depths of the also-rans. What a place to live. I know what you're thinking. If that was the also-rans, what the hell is going to be in that top 10? Well, you're going to have to wait because right now... I'm going to be throwing off these earthly shackles. Gravity is boring. Horror can be really horrible. And I don't know about you, but so far, listening to this business has made me feel pretty frightened inside. So let's take a break, shall we? What better place than to be up here amongst the stars on the Walla Not Wella mothership where the air is gone and it's definitely cold. There, that's better. But before we get all science fiction and fantastical, I have to let you know there were two movies that I couldn't locate for the horror part of the show. And they looked both pretty cool to me. They were I Like Bats. That is, I Like Bats, which is a Polish vampire movie. And I also missed out on an Osploitation one called Bridge to Nowhere. Couldn't find that. Nowhere. Bridge to Nowhere. But, as I've said, that's horror, right? And here in the vacuum of space... We don't do horror, we do sci-fi, we do fantasy, and for 1986, well, I watched a total of 16 sci-fi and fantasy movies, but only the top five were decent to great. And after having a thorough delve into those, I can tell you, I can report back to you, in fact, that you can expect time travellers, body swapping, post-apocalyptic landscape scenarios, immortal beings, superheroes, robots, martial artists, puppeteers, spaceships. Ah, uh, yeah, 86, full of all that nonsense. So, we're ready to go now. That's a little intro done. And this is number 16 to number 1. Sci-Fi Corner. And the worst in the bunch, at the very bottom of my pile, is a film called Egomania, which I caught on Amazon Prime. I really tried with it. It is a psychedelic art house, avant-garde, what should we call it sort of thing. I hated it. Didn't get it at all. It was way too clever for me. Uh, it didn't even look nice. It didn't sound nice. It was just shit. But, you know. What I think is shit, some people may like to have a cuddle with. So, at number 15 then, it's Hands of Steel. Proceed with mission as directed. And don't let there be any mistakes. 
Neutralize. Neutralize. No! Just follow my orders. We won't fail. That was the trailer for Hands of Steel. And the future looked pretty bleak in this post-apocalyptic world. I think this movie came out a whole year before Stallone's over the top, but there is a lot of arm wrestling in here with lots of tough-looking, muscly type of men. There's also lots of cheap guns. There's a couple of cool gags. My favourite being a punch through a helmet, which then that fist ripped apart the eyes underneath. But to be honest, there wasn't a lot else to it. Next up was Willy Millie. And can I just say, I wish this movie came out today. What a can of worms this would open. This is a schoolgirl wishes for a dick and then gets one premise. Uh, it's a coming of age comedy. It fails all over the place. I wouldn't even be tempted that Pamela Adlon she is the young star of this one. There's way too many questions to be asked about how it was made, why they made it, what was anyone doing. But willy-milly, if you fancy it, I definitely wouldn't recommend it. Still, we're in the rubbish zone. And part of the rubbish zone is Howard the Duck. Nothing prepared me for quite how bad this one was. It looks expensive, sort of. And the casting and the story should work well enough for a kid's film. But that costume design, the scripting, the editing, and just a big, fat, unnameable thing. Well, something is wrong here. The whole feel of this thing is crap. It's difficult to articulate just why, unless you see it. But I wouldn't wish that upon you, so don't bother. Slightly better than Howard the Duck, though. But it is still pants, is Sleepwalk. Now you can watch this one on Prime if you so wish. The synopsis reads, A woman is hired to transcribe an ancient Chinese manuscript. She finds that little by little, the manuscript has powers that begin to take over her life. It is not that interesting. This is me now, not the actual synopsis, because why would you say it's not that interesting on it? Uh, I can tell you that I feel that the acting is third rate. I can tell you though that I felt like the acting was aiming for Lynch and it never quite got there. You know that way that it sort of feels like uncanny valley, people don't actually speak like that. Well this is a sort of third rate take on it. It gets a little trippy also in its latter stages but it was not worth the hunt that I had to make for it and as I say I found it on Prime. Just a little bit more favourable in my mind is the next one, and that next one is The Manhattan Project. Now, this one is where a kid makes a nuclear bomb, and it is so absolutely far-fetched and insane that it makes war games look like a documentary. Uh, and we're going into the top ten. Right now, we're in there. Number ten, it's incredibly dated, it's incredibly racist, and it is not a Wally prequel. It's short circuit. Not going to say anything else about it. Because at number nine, it's Biggles. It must be a mistake. It should have happened by now. Together, their adventure begins one step back in time. Where did you come from? I have no idea. Biggles, in the West End and across London now.
Now, with Biggles, it was such a strange choice to have this adaptation to be a time travel science fiction film. Plus, it's a little bit cheap looking despite its wartime sets and extras. You can tell the money was pumped into it, but I don't know, it just looks cheap. I'm not the biggest fan of it, and by the look of other reviews on Letterboxd, nor are many other people, but this is the caveat. Peter Cushing has a very small role, and apparently it was his last before his death, so for that alone, I would say it's a must-watch at least once. Following this is To Sleep So As To Dream, and I caught it, of course, on YouTube. It is quite interesting. I guess it's a Japanese throwback to 50s film noir. It's recreated using fantastical elements and imagery. It's not my bag, as have none of these been so far, but I was happy enough to sit through it and sort of get lost in the monochrome spectacle of it all. Arrow video, they did release a Blu-ray, I'm pretty sure of this, but as I say, I found it on YouTube. And I would say, if you're in the market for an obtuse sort of recreation of a bygone age with a kidnapping plot and a couple of great leads, you could probably do a lot worse. But somehow, somehow, the next one is even better than that. And maybe because of nostalgia, I don't know, but it is a family favourite flight of the Navigator. What gets me about this one, it is from the guy that directed Grease and the Blue Lagoon. It didn't hold up for me at all. The special effects were sort of serviceable still, but the sentiment and the cheese factor, and especially that family dynamic on this one, it's proper rubbish. Uh, I'm going to take it back. Nostalgia did not help me. Flight of the Navigator, still shit. And although the next one was okay, I think cinephiles tend to love it. It's way high for them. Uh, it's called Dead End Driving. Now, I thought the worst when I started to watch it. I did. But then I decided in my brain, right, this is like a Mad Max story. Like some of those Star Wars films are in that universe and it's a Star Wars story. So I feel like this one is a Mad Max story. And if you think of it like that, I mean, I pictured this one as it's set in a time shortly before the events of the first Mad Max film. And then if you are fresh to this film like me, you may well find a ton of joy in it because I sort of got into it at that stage. Uh, it's about a boy that meets a girl, then the boy takes the girl to the movies and the boy has to stay there forever. That's it. Not bad. But things are now beginning to improve a lot. Because at number five, it's Peggy Sue Got Married. And it's by Francis Ford Coppola, would you believe? Uh, he does uh, the sort of inferior version of Back to the Future here. But it is better than average. Uh, it's just that Nicolas Cage, he just chooses a voice that is bizarre. It's so bizarre. What a bizarre choice for his character. Jim Carrey's in it as well. And he plays uh, Jim Carrey, really. And then Kathleen Turner, she has sex with a school kid. It's hardly a banger, although Kathleen Turner and the school kids, maybe that's a banger. In at number four, it's John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. And who doesn't love Big Trouble in Little China? I can imagine that the majority of listeners to A Year in Horror grew up with this one, just like I did. We've got Kurt Douglas, he is useless in the best of ways. And watching it back plays out like Carpenter is just simply throwing everything in his arsenal at this one and just seeing what sticks. I think it's a mess, but it is a glorious, glorious mess. And we're into the top three now. So at number three, I've got a guest to discuss this one. Uh, I wanted their thoughts. And I have to admit, 
I was a bit confuzzled because I'm not sure whether I love this because it's just been with me through thick and thin when I was growing up in my youth, or is it actually good? Well, to help me on my way to find out is podcast regular Paul Chanter. He is the dude that will work for food that's not in the mood and will not be misconstrued. Oh yes, it is Chancer, 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 Paul Chancer. In case you forget his name, grab a pen, write it down. It's Paul Chancer. Highlander, 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 Highlander. Because you were born different, men will fear you, try to drive you away. I am Colonel McLeod. Paul Chanter, welcome to Highlander. You are now into sci-fi corner with that added splash of fantasy. Have I been here before? Have I been here before? I don't think so. Oh, you have, because we did Batman. Batman Returns. Oh, yes. I do like the uh, the added splash, though. (laughs) So so I've heard. So I've heard. Um, before we go into Highlander, I just want to go through a few of your favourite 80s fantasy films. Like, And would you consider this part of like the, the likes of, uh, well, in case you choose them, I won't say. But like, there are there were tons in the 80s and it's really like close to my heart, that period. Because I was growing up then, as yeah. I imagine were you. So, yeah. yeah, what would you recommend for those that perhaps haven't delved? What, 80s fantasy? Uh, Come on, 80s fantasy. Now we're talking. It depends what you call this list as fantasy, because to me, Highlander is definitely in that kind of... Well, yeah, hang on. But you've got stuff like The Dark Crystal, Krull, Clash of the Titans, Conan, you know, that... Anything involving a sword and some witches and wizards and stuff like that, that, that to me is fantasy then. But you, you kind of... Do you include stuff like... Beetlejuice and Ghostbusters, you know, Gremlins, because technically yeah. fantasy, you know, and to yeah. me, Highlander kind of sits towards that kind of the nastier end, not as far as Excalibur, but, you know, that getting there. God, Excalibur was a drag. <laughs> was you, sir, are it. completely <laughs> incorrect. <laughs> um I put on my little list. I put. Oh, I really loved Return to Oz, like uh, as a, a fantasy film. I love that film, um, and Kroll. There were there were Kroll. I saw Kroll in the flicks. I went to the cinema to see Kroll. One that I did buy though uh, when I was younger, and I've watched so many, so many times. You know, when you just watch films ridiculous amount of times, you lose count. Is Highlander? Yes. Um, yeah. 
and I realised I hadn't watched it for decades. Not a decade, for decades. Wow. It's mad. Um, what's your history with Highlander? And is this one that you would... I know you've picked it, so you must rate it, but is it like really up there for you? In, t- in terms of like what I think are the greatest films ever yeah, made? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say it was up there in that kind of list, but in, t- in terms of like my favourite films which are not going to be the greatest films ever made all the way through, you know? But all I know is that I can only ever do the top three, and it's Jaws, Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then the list changes. But it's the same films, but they they change order. Um, I don't know where Highlander would be on that list, Um, but it would be very... It would be up there, definitely, because there's just something... I love about Highlander um, and I've said this loads of times on your on on your show um, <laughs> that it was just one of those films that was talked about by friends at school like have you seen Highlander oh, it's awesome like people are getting their heads cut off and all this kind of stuff. so I just I, I think I might just or I just picked it up because of the cover you know because um, I was always a sucker for a, a hand-drawn you know painted yeah. Drew Struzan kind of cover you know um, or maybe I saw a trailer of it on another film I hired, you know, back in the day when they used to put loads of trailers at the beginning before the main film. And at, and at that point, when I was a teenager, I was actually writing down trailers that I liked the look of so I could try and find them. It's when because I go you were the coolest. That's why. I was, no, it's because I was a nerd and I was starting oh, yeah. <laughs> to become slightly obsessive. Um, but yeah, it's a film I've always had a copy of. And it was a film I was actually late to a school disco once because I was watching Highlander and I I couldn't be asked to leave on time. <laughs> the ending might change. Hold on. <laughs> it's like, no, it's too cool. I don't want this. It's too rad. I'm not leaving yet. It's appealed to me um, at that time. And what made me come back and come back and come back, it was Sean Connery. Of all the things, as a kid as well, when when he enters the fray, it yeah. uh, and maybe it's the montage. I don't know what it is about it, but it, it hits me like those scenes in Rocky, or it hits me like those uh, Karate Kid sort of things. Like we're oh, you mean a training? Yeah, montage. that sort of training right. montage thing. Mm. It, it gets me ready for like rubbing my hands together. Like with, this is we're going to get to this climax. It's going to be this crazy fight. There can yeah. be only one, you know, all this sort of yeah. stuff. Like it, it's so exciting from that point on. I can only think that that's why I would revisit a film like this because when I look back now, it's it's reasonably slow. It's not particularly well put together, um, mm. and yet there is something that is so addictive and so lovable yeah. about it. I don't, I can't yeah. put my finger on it. No, I know, I know exactly what you mean. What is the phrase? You know, we don't love things because we're there, because they're perfect. We love things because of their imperfections. You know, and, and that's I think true Hi- this. I think Highlander is definitely that. I can point things out that like, oh, that's that's shonky, <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, I know what they're doing there, and yeah, I know how they did that, and that's badly edited. That's a bad backdrop. That's a dummy. That's not Sean Connery. That do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's, but I don't fucking care. I don't care. He, are you saying <laughs> he wouldn't have gone right up on that mountaintop and done a done a slow motion sword fight? Come on. Oh, yeah. Do you know who that is? Do you know who that is doing that? Oh, please. That's Bob Anderson, who was the double... Uh, he, he was Darth Vader in all the um, 
all the kind of wow. lightsaber duels. And he and he was like the guy to teach swordplay. So he t- he taught Viggo Mortensen on for the Lord of the Rings. He did all like Pirates of the Caribbean. So he was the sword guy. And there he is on top of yeah. that mount. I don't. How the hell did they get up on there? Like this I think I think it's CG. just they kind of yeah they just kind of like drop them there from the helicopter and then <laughs> like stay there Christ. swing a sword about a bit we're just gonna fly around and try not to get too close because we don't want another Twilight Zone the movie oh and then you know. <laughs> Christ but yeah but yeah so like so there are things I I I don't want to say there are things wrong with Highlander too right. but there are things that I forgive put it that way yeah yeah. Um, yeah, such as, such as those things where it's obviously not them, but uh, yeah, there, there is something truly majestic for this. And I think, like when I, when we mentioned them films, like I said, Return to Oz, you mentioned um, Krull. Uh, we could mention like Legend or Never Ending Story, Willow, all yep. that sort of stuff. Yeah, like yeah. this doesn't really fit in with that. It feels way more adult. No. I think this was a yes. fifteen. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So so yeah, it just feels a bit more like you're grown up if you watch this rather than you're having like a, a, a kiddie fantasy. There's just something like, I mean, there are heavy themes. I mean, we could straight away, well, this guy is immortal and he had the love of his life that he had to watch grow old and die. You know, yeah. that's not a, a, a child friendly scene, is it? That's a, well, the fact adult that theme. the main characters, their, their motivation is to cut the head off of other characters. <laughs> You know Shouldn't that's that's not a, that's not a very kid friendly thing to start off with, um, but it it definitely yeah things like you know uh, not necessarily Conan but like Red Sonia definitely is you know Krull like you said never ending story things like that they're kind of not not kiddie films because even in the eighties I think we said about this when we were talking about Krampus and talking about Gremlins mm. stuff that there was there was a kind of twist like a, a sadistic side to some 80s fantasy stuff that isn't necessarily there now um so they weren't necessarily kiddie films but they were they were aimed and made for children highlander wasn't made for children definitely you know the kurgan isn't isn't somebody that you know they're gonna make pajamas with him on you know <laughs> well oh, i i would buy a set um, i would totally yeah i would so buy a set. so like I, the the next thing that I put to you was like Christopher Lambert, Sean Connery, and Clancy Brown, right? So these are, are your main threesome within this film, and they all demand the screen. Like even mm. Christopher Lambert, who you would say like, well, come on, like even Clancy Brown, let alone Sean Connery, like they're big, big characters, over the top sort of characters. Yeah. Their accents yeah. are full, like they're, they're, they're you know, there's a lot about them. I think Christopher holds up his end. I really do. My favourite scene with him is when he discovers that he can't die when he's underwater and they ADR, okay. oh, I can breathe, or something like that. Something yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But like, yeah. I just, like, from that moment, I, I just think he holds his own with everyone else. Um, yeah, I, I want to talk to you mainly about Clancy Brown because I love him. Um, this is my first time that I saw him. Uh, what do you think about the casting in this? Do you think I'm right? Do you think that like he holds it up against the likes of Sean Connery? What, Christopher Lambert? Yeah. Christophe Lambert? Yeah. Um, the Frenchman playing a Scotsman. Um, in a film with a Scotsman playing an Egyptian by way of Spain. 
and an American playing a Russian. <laughs> it's fucking mental. Perfect. Um, Christopher Lambert, I had the only thing I'd seen him in was Greystoke, the Legend of Tarzan. Oh, never um, seen it. And he doesn't really speak in that because they had to teach him how to speak English to play Highlander. Um, wow. He couldn't speak. He couldn't. He couldn't speak English. No, come on. Yeah, he, his his English was pretty much non-existent. Was he phonetically like reading back some lines and stuff? I like think that? so. Wow. I think so. And that's why. Yeah, but it leads. That leads to one of the best lines in the film, and the moment where, like, like you said, the moment where I totally bought in to Christopher Lambert in the role when that copper says to him, "You sound funny. Where are you from?" You got a funny accent. Where are you from? And he just goes lots of different places. It's just the way he says that, and the look he does. He has that weird eyebrow thing, <laughs> yes. where he just looks through his eyebrows at everybody, and he just, he just, that look. He he, he kind of is quite commanding, and then, like you said, to have him, I mean, he seems like a bizarre choice, but I can't imagine any anybody else playing that role at that time. The thing is. Kurt Russell was cast as McLeod. Wow. He was cast and he was he was going to be Connor McLeod, but Goldie Horn persuaded him not to do it. What? Yeah. I don't know why, and it just gives me another reason to hate Goldie Horn. Um <laughs> but anyway. But yeah, he does kind of for Christopher Lambert clearly has some kind of intensity going on to be able to stand next to Sean Connery and still and not get blown off the screen yeah because i think sean connery i think this role was the first of his kind of older mentor roles that he started to take around this time so like um the untouchables where he's the men older mentor to kevin costner and um uh last crusade indiana jones the last crusade and 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 then when you think about other people that were considered for that role which included people like Clint Eastwood, um, Gene Hackman, Michael Caine. They all they all turned it down. Uh, the role of Ramirez. Um, but I don't know what it is. It, 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 like as weird as it is for Sean Connery to be in a film called Highlander, but be playing an Egyptian. <laughs> Who sounds very Scottish. Yeah, yeah. Didn't even try, yeah. did he? Didn't even try. No, you know, it's... um. And I think one of the coolest things is that the first thing you hear is Sean Connery, you know, um, just that from the dawn of time we came. As soon as he says that, it just, right, okay. And that sets up this kind of... It puts it right into that kind of 80s fantasy thing. As soon as you get that voiceover with the text you know right okay this is this is a fantasy thing um and the fact that they recorded that in his bathroom in spain is absolutely amazing <laughs> that's why it echoes so much it's just recorded in his bathroom they could they had no money left to do anything i, I um, knew none of this this is all yeah, brilliant it's oh that's kind of like well-known thing but um yeah and um with uh, uh clancy brown i think it was probably the first thing i'd ever seen him in same um and his entrance is amazing. Anybody kind of like bolts, you know, rears up on a horse and gets struck by lightning as their intro is like, yeah, that's that's pretty rad as far as it goes. Um, and the way he plays Kurgan, 
with like a, I don't know, like a saber toothed tiger skull for a mask for a helmet, um, and then you know when he comes when he it turns up in like in present day kind of New York and ends up with a shaved head and. Yeah, it's just he, he safety he just, pins in his neck, yeah, holding yeah, his just, neck together properly. He's absolutely psychotic. I think there's a line that um, what's she called? Rachel, I think she's called, which is kind of like McLeod's Alfred. Yeah, if McLeod was Bruce, I Wayne. knew you would pick up on that straight yeah, away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but she says, you know, he, all the killing has kind of he's it's driven him insane. Kurgan's kind of gone a bit loopy because I think maybe it's because he's getting closer to the prize, you know. But the fact that he shouts when they're in the when they're in the church when he meets McLeod in the church and McLeod gets a bit pissy with him and goes to grab him or whatever, and Kurgan just says, "Holy ground, Highlander! Remember what Ramirez taught you." It's like. He still obeys the rules, no matter how psychotic he is. He still obeys the rules, you know. So he's still got this through line of sort of respect for who they are and what they what they have to do because they ultimately have to do it. Um, Why? Why do they have to do it, Paul? To, it's for the prize, the prize, <laughs> the prize. But, but the, that's, that's the one one of the things that like bothers me about Highlander, which I didn't even realize until I watched it this week. Is that um, it's the gathering for the prize, and when you kill somebody, you feel the quickening, <laughs> and and you're up against the Kurgan. It's the everything, but the in front of something, it's immediately oh, it's yeah. such gravitas, Powerful. the. Um, but I don't care. I don't care. I I, I love the film. Well, um, the prize seems to me that you are no longer immortal when you can have kids. Is that it? Is that the, what and you, the prize and you, is? And you, and you know what everybody around the world is thinking <laughs> at once. So you can, you can, you know, you can help politicians resolve their issues and all this kind of stuff and uh, blah, 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 blah. But um, I, I quite like just being immortal. I would say let's, the last two of us, let's just... Uh, yeah, I'll just not bother you. You don't cut me head off. <laughs> You don't need to know everything, mate. Seriously, there's just be a lot of noise. People talk a lot of shit, so you don't need to hear all that. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that changed from the original script, which that's insane as well. The guy who wrote this screenplay, he wrote it as his his final piece when he was doing his degree. Um, and he he, and it was um, oh, I can't remember what uni he was at, but it was in California, I think. Uh, he and he wrote this as his final piece, um, you know, like that's his dissertation kind of thing. He wrote this screenplay, um, and because it's in California, producers kind of circle like vultures around the university to kind of keep an eye if anybody's exceptional. And they heard about this script. They bought it for two hundred thousand, I think, and they said to him, "You can have a percentage of whatever we get the." for a budget to make it and of course the budget as soon as they got Sean Connery whoa budget's gone up several million oh now we've got Christopher Lambert oh well budget's gone up a couple million oh we've got the this guy ended up becoming a millionaire just because of this one script that he wrote for his end of degree was it a success then Highlander I know that the last film we talked about which was The Hitcher or maybe that's going to be a future film that flopped and um, was mm. this one a success I don't. I don't think it was when it came out. I think it was made for like something like fifteen and earned thirteen million. 
so it didn't i don't think it made its money back until vhs and when it came out on vhs it went fucking mental and that's that's because it was right it's 86 you know it's bang in the middle of like the video rental kind of boom so you know the home video thing it just took off you know like the whole word of mouth thing that's how i I heard about it was people just talking about this awesome film i got mine in 1988 5.99 our price uh cheap sale and uh never took a sticker off so yeah just that cover (laughs) i just remember it um yeah but yeah yeah, and that hand drawing as well awesome i didn't didn't mention i was going to ask you this but i've got to queen kind of magic the soundtrack so yes. I'd never heard uh, a Queen Elman fall before this. Um, I'd liked I Want to Break Free. Uh, growing up, I thought that was uh, good. Radio Gaga, whatever. I just knew them through osmosis, radio, whatever. Yeah. I, I bought this after watching the film, uh, so uh, long after the fact that it, um, it came out. I absolutely love it. I don't know how you feel about Queen, um, but we're about to get there. So what do you think about this soundtrack? It's weird because I think I saw the film before this, I heard the soundtrack and I just, I think a lot of people assume that the soundtrack came first, um, you know, that the uh, Queen wrote okay, Queen yeah, wrote yeah. these songs and they were included in this film. So when he when the bit where McLeod gets shot in World War Two and he lands on the, 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 the little girl, Rachel. And she says, you're not dead. And he says, hey, it's a kind of magic. It was the other way around. Queen watched the film. Queen were asked, do you, do you want to do some music for this film? They said, can we watch it? They watched the film. They fucking loved it. And they all immediately just flew off and just started writing their own stuff. So Brian May wrote um, Princes of the Universe. And uh, I think... Think Freddie Mercury wrote "Who Wants to Live Forever." I'm not sure, and um, Roger Taylor wrote um, "Don't Lose Your Head." Um, oh, that is so Roger Taylor. That song. It's all fucking drums in it. <laughs> Which, who wrote this one? Um, but I mean, yeah, and like, and the scene with where they use "Who Wants to Live Forever," which is a different version of Who Wants to Live Forever because the version used in Highlander, Freddie Mercury sings the whole thing. Whereas the version on the album, Brian May sings the first verse and Freddie Mercury only starts at the ah. second, second verse. So the version in the film, Freddie Mercury sings the whole thing. And that section of the film could be just a promo video for Who Wants to Live Forever because they play pretty much the whole song so they take the vocals out because the the characters start talking, um, but that scene is uh, it's fucking heartbreaking. That scene, <laughs> it ge- genuinely, genuinely is. And if you're in the right or wrong, whichever way you want to take it, frame of mind, that scene could really, really ruin your day. It's a, it's, it's so heartbreaking, and it was rumoured to be even worse in the initial screenplay because it wasn't until later draft of the screenplay where they decided that immortals couldn't have children so in the initial screenplay he had kids as well and he had to watch all of them die so it's like fucking hell 
so it would have been even more depressing watching his wife die and then his kids get old and die at which point they would be saying why aren't you any older (laughs) so this is the scene that my wife was like don't know don't know about this it's a bit much and i was just like well what do you mean it's a bit much she's like it's, it's like trying to pull at your heartstrings like too much because of right. the song and i think it's because this song is just a well-known queen song now yeah yeah like you know and and maybe... especially if people make the mistake of thinking that exactly. the song came first say like, oh well they've written this around this song it's like no no it, the the scene was there and then they wrote over the top of it, you know, and which is unreal. And of course, the score, uh, Michael Kamen, he's doing all the orchestration for it. I mean, he did like he's done like all the Lethal Weapon stuff with um, Eric Clapton and Sting and stuff. Of course, he did the Metallica um, S and M yep. thing, which, if you're as sad and Highlander fan as me, if you listen to the orchestral flourish just before the second verse of battery he does the same descending thing that he does in highlander in the scene where connor turns into the mona lisa there you go fucking have some of that it's uh, it's it's so michael like every composer like danny elfman hands him john williams they've all got little trademark things that they do and Michael Kamen has this thing where bum, 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 he comes down like that, and it's like he does it. He does it on the S and M thing. As soon as I heard it on the S and M thing back in '99, I was like, "Oh fucking hell, that's totally Islander." <laughs> but his score is just awesome, absolutely awesome, and it doesn't get enough credit because people focus on um, Queen, which yeah. is fair enough because you know who who doesn't get slightly tumescent when Princes of the Universe kicks in. I was. It's so heavy, that Queen album. It's so heavy. I did not expect, because at the time I was getting into things like Crew and uh, I was getting back into Kiss, but it was the heavy metal Kiss from like, uh, from from the 80s period before they went pop. Uh, And there there were, uh, so uh, these were my like things. Oh, what's Iron Maiden? What's Motorhead? I was just getting into all this stuff. And there's Queen releasing an album which I could put happily within that heavy metal collection. Oh, it's just so... Who, right, cannot watch the beginning of Highlander? And Sean Connery does his little speech. Oh, n- nobody's ever known we were among you until now. Here we are, born to be... Wow! It's fucking princes of the universe class! If you don't get a boner at that, you may as well just not bother watching the rest of the film. If you can't buy into it <laughs> at that point... Just don't bother. Don't bother. Highlander, red red Highlander across the screen. Queen kicking off. If you haven't bought into it by then. This is one of the films, I don't know if it's nostalgia or, or whether it's um, great. It was Claire's first time, as I say. She thought, she, at the end of it, she just thought, oh, that's all right. And I was like, oh. That's the thing. I've noticed that. That if you sh- if you show Highlander now to people who've never seen it, they go... Oh, that was a bit 80s. Or like, well, that was a bit silly, wasn't it? And you're like, ah. you feel a little bit crestfallen, I think is the word for it. You know, you're just like, well, hang on, that's class, what do you mean? And, but you have to kind of, 
Yeah, it is ages. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, sorry, carry on. Um, did you ever do any of these sequels? No, I did not. <laughs> do you know what, right? I haven't bothered with any of them. I heard how bad Highlander 2 The Quickening was. Um, and I saw photos um, when it was released. And I think I caught five minutes of it maybe on TV once. And then when I just heard that they made some hideous kind of retcon that all the immortals were actually aliens or some shit, I just... Oh, wow. I just stayed away from it. And every other sequel and the TV show... If I wish, along with Batman and Robin and the Jaws sequels, that the Highlander sequels could be shot into the sun. Um, you know... There can literally only be one. Ah, <laughs> oh, that is a shame because after I've finished, I've got a slew of interviews to do over the next few days, and then on YouTube, sitting there for nothing just to watch in HD, apparently. So it says is Highlander to the quickening. Don't do it, man. Don't do it. <laughs> don't, don't do it. To don't, yourself. don't don't sully the original. It's it's I I can't I can't. And the thing is, it's just meant to be shit as well. It's just not not only does it kind of fuck up the original, but it's also just bad. It's just a bad <laughs> film. I think I think um, Highlander three was meant to be okay. I think, but uh, and there's some anime ones which are meant to be all right, but. I just got no interest in any of them. Like, you know, there can be only one. You know? um, all right. Okay. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for coming back onto the show yeah. to do, talk about 1986 of all years. I love it. I love 1986. It was, it was, a, it was a very good year. <laughs> There we go, Paul Chanter there, with me, of course, because that was me and him chatting, and we were, of course, discussing Highlander. But at number two, better than Highlander, as far as I am concerned, and it is a concerning concern, it's Labyrinth, directed by Jim Henson, and it still holds up. Not that I liked it as a kid, because I thought, ah, oh, this film is way too girly for me. I just want to ignore the dance magic dance composite scene because that still looks awful now. Uh, but everything else about it, it's a Muppet filled monstrosity. I want it to wash over me. And every time Claire puts it in and says, let's watch Labyrinth, I'm game. I can't watch anything else. My phone goes down. Yes, David Bowie has a dick. Very good spot. Well done. It doesn't stop it from being my number two. So... A rundown. That's right, it's rundown time. So, number 10, Short Circuit. At number 9, Biggles. At number 8, To Sleep So As To Dream. At number 7, Flight of the Navigator. At number six, Dead End Drive-In. At number five, Peggy Sue Got Married. At four, Big Trouble in Little China. And at number three, it's Highlander. 
Number two is Labyrinth. So number one, if you've worked it all out, what came out that time? Science fiction. Well, it can only be Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. When they decided to go home, judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, I believe we have arrived at the latter half of the 20th century. Everybody remember where we parked. They had no idea how far they'd go. Many of their customs will doubtless take us by surprise. What does it mean, exact change? You're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, rated PG. Now playing at theaters everywhere. That was the trailer for Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. It was directed by Spock himself. And here's a synopsis. It's the 23rd century. A mysterious alien power is threatening Earth by evaporating the oceans and destroying the atmosphere. In a frantic attempt to save mankind, Kirk and his crew, they must travel back to 1986 San Francisco where they find a world of punk, of pizza and exact change buses that are as alien as anything they've ever encountered in the far reaches of the galaxy. It's a thrilling, action-packed Star Trek adventure. And what an adventure it was for me. Rewatching this one a few weeks ago, I was laughing at the genuine tight-as-hell chemistry that Leonard Nimoy and uh, William Shatner have on screen. I'm not kidding. I know they didn't get on all the time, but it really works for this franchise. Most of the jokes in this film hit, and the science fiction premise is ridiculous and episodic, and the writing by Nicholas Meyer, Harv Bennett, Steve Meerson, and Peter Crikes, it's brilliant. It's stupid fun all the way through. It's great science fiction nonsense. It's a perfect way to end this session of Sci-Fi Corner. So, finally, let's get back to it, right? Too much spaceships. We're not children. Let's get into real horror, shall we? This is the pick of the pops, the absolute terror that is a year in horror, the top 10. Number 10. 